I've started taking a lot of walks recently. Every day we go out as a family. Elliot flies past us on her scooter as we walk the empty streets of South Lake Union, the locals only scene of the Seattle Center. We, we walk into downtown, hardly ever passing a single person. It's weird, right? I also started taking solo walks in the morning. Walking up into an empty Cary Park and Parsons Garden. Slowing down. Gathering my thoughts. Finding space outside our crowded apartment. I, I get to breathe. Decompress. Feel a little bit normal once again. There's been something rather restorative about these walks for me. M moments to pause and pay attention, to see the flowers on the trees, watch tulips and daffodils sway in the wind, feeling the sun on my face and the breeze brush past my fingertips, to see the mountains, the mountain, and the beauty that we're surrounded by. To stop and pay attention. These, these walks have been good for me. Listening to scripture, past seasons of our Awake My Soul podcast. To pray. To find quiet. To sit and meditate. Reflect on my thoughts and feelings. To connect with what's happening in and around me. To seek solace. Comfort. The presence of God. Our therapist suggested this practice, especially for this season. It's been a game changer for me. I, I, I know this is a challenging season of change, of decision fatigue, of grief and loss, of uncertainty piled on top of uncertainty. And with all of this, I want you to know you'll never walk alone. That to the extent that you wish, want, desire, or even capable of, we'll be here. That's why there's a connect with a pastor link always up on our unitedchurch.live page. That's why we're doing weekly digital happy hours. It's why we're trying new things and new ways of staying connected and present with and, and for one another. But sometimes that's not enough. And sometimes that's more than we have or are able to give in this season. And that's okay. Give yourself some grace, some mercy. And other times, other times we just need to force ourselves to connect, to lean hard into these relational spaces. Sometimes we need to push ourselves for ourselves, for our own benefit, because, because together we get to hold the tension of hope and possibility for each other. We hold one another up, especially when we need it the most. All around us, all around us, there are these signs of life, signs of hope emerging, bursting into view. But but we can close ourselves off to those possibilities, especially if we quarantine ourselves from experiencing and experimenting with new ways of seeing. If we remain locked away, focusing 
on the darkness. This is the first Sunday after Easter. Easter tide, this season is called. A, a beautiful phrase, right? I, I like to think of it as a wave washing over each and every one of us, bringing, bringing new life, new possibilities, new hopes in its wake. And so to help us ride this beautiful wave of Easter tide, we're entering into a new series called Signs of Life, looking at the eight miracles found in the Gospel of John that alert us to a new way of seeing, a new way of hoping, a new way of engaging this new life that's emerging from the darkness. And I know, miracles can be a hard pill for many of us to swallow, especially in this pandemic, with, with so many throwing science and reason out the window. And, and it seems like a conversation about miracles right now might help to further discount or discredit science, rendering it moot in the spiritual landscape. I get it. I, I really do. I, I really like how C.S. Lewis presses into this fear in his book, Miracles. Lewis says, Nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. Belief in miracles, far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. Or in other words, we don't discount science. We press further into it. We venture deeper into the mysterious unknown of natural law. We, we journey beyond the edge of our knowledge to explore and discover new and beautiful truths about the God of the universe. And, and there, in our new discoveries, we experience just how much further there is to go. It, it's not that miracles discount science, but rather that these miracles lie at the edge of science. They lay in the unknown, undiscovered parts of the scientific the realms where we have yet to reach, of territories yet to be discovered. Miracles in science don't, don't stand in opposition to one another. They're a part of the mysterious and beautiful and immensely complex world we inhabit. Miracles are simply another part of our world, waiting and working to break through. The rejoining of heaven and earth that Jesus announced with his first miracle in John chapter 2 which is such an interesting miracle, especially as an announcement of a new world on the horizon. The miracle? Turning water into wine, which is a favorite miracle of many, especially now in quarantine. I mean, it's a pretty awesome party trick, right? And, and this miracle has often been used to rebuff the teetotalers in the wake of prohibition. Well, Jesus didn't just drink, he made wine. What's unfortunate is that this has become the extent of the miracle for us, an apologetic for drinking. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's actually a declaration of what is coming, of, of what's at our doorstep, a new life bursting into the world all around us. This miracle happens at a wedding, and weddings were an event, a week-long event. Tracy and I were like, hey, 
let's make this quick. Two-hour reception, then let's jet. Because that's enough of that. No one needs to see me do the YMCA. But these weddings? Seven days. Seven days of dancing, partying, the chicken dance. This wedding was, how do you say, lit. So off the hook that they actually ran out of wine, which is quite a feat, honestly. They, they cleaned out seven days worth of wine and the reserves. And this, this is actually a crisis, a moment that would bring tons of shame and embarrassment to the family. And here's Mary, Jesus's mom, walking with determination looking for her son to fix it. And you have to wonder, what, what did she expect? Was she looking for Jesus and his friends, the disciples, to, to go on a beer run? Or something different, something miraculous? Which would be an interesting expectation, considering he'd never performed a miracle yet. It's, it's like the epitome of motherly expectation, right? You can do it, honey. I believe in you. And Jesus gives a somewhat humorous response. He basically calls her ma'am, not mom, ma'am, 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 ma'am. Why are you roping me in? This isn't my time or place. And Mary looks over at the wait staff, disregarding what Jesus just said. Just do whatever he says, okay? You can almost imagine her rolling her eyes and thinking, Ma'am, I'm still your mother. Jesus looks to the waitstaff, and like any son, you can just imagine him rolling his eyes with this look of mothers. Am I right? Now, now next to them are these six stone jars, each one capable of holding about, about 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus says, all right, fellas, fill them up. Now, if I'm a waiter and we're out of wine, and I've got this guy telling me to fill up huge jars with water, I, I'm going to be like, all right, buddy. And, and let's be honest, this is no small feat. These, these jars are heavy, stone jars. And the staff has to either get them to the water or get the water to the jars. They're, they're basically trying to fill up over two bathtubs full of water. This isn't a quick task. Can you just imagine these guys filling up these huge jars, asking each other, what is this guy doing? This is insane. These people aren't drunk enough to realize this water isn't actually wine, are they? And when they're finished, Jesus tells them to grab a ladle full of water and take it to the master of the banquet, which again, you've got to imagine the waitstaff here looking at each other, just in perplexity, trying to figure out who gets the short straw? I was a waiter for a bit in college, and whenever I waited on large parties, I never wanted to be the sacrificial lamb who had to tell the head of the table the bad news, let alone pulling one over on him. And, and you know it's the waiter with the least amount of seniority being picked for the task. All right, Gary, you're up. And Gary hangs his head low, grabs the ladle of shame, and starts the long walk towards the master of the banquet. Now, we all know what happens. The water turns to wine. But when? Did it happen when Gary dipped the ladle? 
Did it happen when he was walking, while he was looking down at the water in the ladle, wondering about the tongue lashing he was about to get? Was it in that moment that the water turned red and a rush of relief and wonder washed over him? Or did Gary actually give the master of the banquet a ladle full of water? I want to believe that Gary had to carry that ladle all the way there and was startled as the master of the banquet exclaimed, Whoa, this is the best wine of the whole week. What? Gary, overcome with surprise, shock, relief, he'd be amazed. One of the only people in the entire room who knew what had happened. Gary, who was on the outside of the party looking in, invited into an inner circle of mystery and beauty. You see, there are two amazing things going on here. Two, two revelations Jesus is making about himself and what's to come. The first has to do with the wine itself. You see, through the First Testament, wine plays a central role of promise. A promise that God had not forgotten his people, that deliverance was on its way, that hope was being renewed and new life and new creation was at hand. It was a banquet of hope. You see, God promised his people that they would be delivered, and the sign of that deliverance would be a feast a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines, a sign of a new world coming to life. And then you'll know that the Lord your God dwells with you. In that last day, the mountains will drip with new wine. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And here, new wine is flowing from these six stone jars. And what's interesting is what Jesus is actually going overboard with. He's going overboard with the wine. I asked the Google to do a little computation for me because I was curious how much wine did Jesus actually create out of the water? Okay, Google, how many bottles of wine are in 180 gallons? 63 cases of wine, or about 756 bottles. Did you catch that? 756 bottles. That's a lot of wine. Like, a lot, a lot. This was a statement, a declaration. And not that Jesus was one lit dude who liked the party. No, 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 no. John was saying, just like all of the prophets of old, God is here. A new world is coming. A, a new life, a new hope, a new promise is at hand. John wrote, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. The first, meaning, hey, Guess what, fam? I've got more. So pay attention. The second revelation, though? Hey, Gary, you're in on this too. You, the waitstaff, the servant, you're, you're not on the outside looking in. You're on the inside, and you're making this happen with me. 
You're a co-creator of this new world. I, I think that's why I like so much this idea of Gary walking all the way to the master of the ceremony with no idea of what's going on. To be astonished, thinking, I'm going to get a tongue lashing to best wine, to this guy must be totally wasted, to walking back to the stone jars and seeing them overflowing with wine, knowing that he had played a part in something remarkable, a, a new declaration of hope and promise. This is what Easter Tide is all about. It's about Gary and you and me participating in the new life that's growing up all around us. It's about you and I partnering with Jesus to crack open the mountains, to see new wine flowing all around us, to, to be dealers of hope and love, of possibility and change. And this, this is for everyone, for you, for me. No matter what people have told you about who you are or how you're somehow disqualified. You see, th that's not the story of Jesus. Jesus, with his first miracle, shows that it's not about the powerful or the prestigious. It's for the lovely, the ordinary. It's open to all. It's open to you. And while the party rages on all around us, there's a circle of people who know just how the party got started who see Jesus for who he really is and follow him in creating new life and hope wherever they go. You see, you too can be a part of this. You, you too can walk into this world of hope and possibility of love and grace and mercy and peace. You, you can step in not only to find rest, but to create and bring along others with you for the ride. This, this is Easter tide. Let the waves wash over you, run through you, change you. And together, let us celebrate what is at hand.